Anita Rodriguez's son, Eric, was diagnosed with an optic glioma when he was 15 years old. Several years later, Eric began to notice lesions in his mouth, which eventually turned into squamous cell carcinoma, which was a cancer that was diagnosed in his head and neck. On today's podcast, Anita will talk about Eric and his battle, which eventually caused his passing on December 29th of last year. In between his original squamous cell carcinoma diagnosis and his passing, Eric was free of cancer for 13 years and lived his life to the fullest. Anita will also discuss the Boston Marathon Jimmy Fun Walk, which takes place this Sunday, October 2nd. This is the largest participatory event that is sponsored by the Jimmy Fund, and Anita, family members, and friends are all walking to raise money for cancer care and research in Eric's honor and memory. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It is now my pleasure to welcome Anita Rodriguez to my podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Now, as we start this podcast, I will take you back to when your son Eric was 15 years old and he was diagnosed with an optic glioma at Boston Children's Hospital. What led up to his diagnosis? Uh, Sure. Well, Um, It really was all from sports, from hockey. He was an avid hockey player and um, he hadn't been um, gaining, getting as many goals. And he seemed to um, just not be quite the same in his, in his impact in the game. And so his coach one night said to us, I'll never forget on a Sunday night, it's as if he's skating blind. He told my husband and I, he said, when he's directly in front of the net, he gets a goal. When he's to the left or right, he can't seem to even get close to it. Uh, And when he gets checked, he said he goes down like a wet noodle. He said, it's like he's blind. And I don't think he meant it like that he really was blind, but that was what came out of him. And so I came home that evening and I said, Eric, what do you think? And he goes, I don't think my vision's different. I don't think, you know, he says, I just, I don't know. The kids are bigger. I'm smaller. You know, he was different excuses. And so I, I did, you know, one of these eye tests, close one eye, you know, and, um, But I didn't see anything. But then I started to notice that I reflected that when he would pour, he was a great water drinker, and we would always have a pitcher of water. And when he would pour the water into a glass, it would go everywhere. And I'd say, you're getting a little klutzy there, teenager. What's going on? Or um, The other thing, he loved tuna fish, and he he couldn't get the can opener. He liked the hand can opener to open when everything was the same color, like silver on silver. And I started to think, like, yeah, you know what? Maybe there was something there. But anyway, we were going to call the doctor the next day anyway, once the coach said that. And so we went to um, an ophthalmologist in a town nearby. And um, this young girl was giving him his initial eye exam, the assistant. And um, he kept fooling around saying, oh, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. And and she said, let's try this again. And um, I said, Eric, it was like he was flirting with her. And I said, Eric, come on, this is serious work. You're taking time away from the office. He goes, I'm telling you, I can't see anything in that eye. So uh, from that eye and uh, the doctor came in and he looked in his eye and 
within seconds, he said to us, um, this pal there, he, I, I believe he has a brain tumor on his optic nerve. And we just sat there. It was not anything we ever expected to hear. Um, and um, it started to bring us back to the fact that, you know what, he's been having some really bad headaches. And we were thinking he was school phobic. And then we started to think it happens only on Monday mornings, it seems, after he's playing hockey. So we had them check the Freon in the hockey rink. Um, like, why was he projectile vomiting and getting these massive headaches sporadically? And when I talked to my pediatrician about it, because they were so infrequent, he said, um, it could be stress. You have him, you know, he's in a new school. It could be stress. So. But then once we went to the doctor, the eye doctor, that all happened before I had um, the, the headaches, not the vision. Um, and my family, we all have migraines as well. So it was really very shadowed to see what it could be. And I believe the doctor and he did too. And he said, you know, it, it could be anxiety from new school. It could be that you all have migraines. We'll watch it closely. He was a phenomenal pediatrician. Once the ophthalmologist told us that, he called Children's Hospital directly. And got us right in. I believe the very next day we were at seeing a children's hospital in Boston, um, wheeled right into an MRI diagnosis, all was done immediately. Um, and he had what they thought was um, a, a phrygenioma. And uh, they said it's a juvenile and it's common and not to worry about it. And, uh, you know, it is large. Um, so when they got in, it was ended up being an uh, uh, optic glioma, which was more involved, and it was on the optic chiasm. So uh, where the tumor was growing in the cyst, it did close off the nerve to his right eye, and it it was dead. And um, they got eighty percent of it. They did a ten-hour surgery and got eighty percent of it, and he came out of it the same way he went in. He didn't lose any more vision and he didn't gain any more vision. <clears throat> and he uh, required uh, radiation therapy, 36 sessions. Well, two comments. First of all, I would think that it's very rare that you would get a diagnosis of a brain tumor from someone who is not a oncologist or doctor mm -hmm. at Children's Hospital as opposed to an ophthalmologist. So that in itself must have sent uh, everyone reeling and in total shock. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he only had 80% of the tumor removed uh, and it really didn't accomplish very much is also a troubling situation. Now, the 30, rad the 30 radiation sessions that he had how long did it take for those uh, sessions uh, to occur? And what conditions were both of his eyes after uh, mm -hmm. the, the radiation was over? So even after the radiation was over, nothing changed. His good eye remained 20-20, which we were very lucky. His bad eye was 2400 we went in and it came out with 2400 um, He also, I feel to say, uh, lost peripheral, almost the entire peripheral field. So, you know, having no vision in one eye, you still can drive. There are things you can still do. Eric could not uh, because of the field of vision. So he had no field to the um, to the left and a little bit to the right. 
none above, none below. So he was almost like telescopic. The vision he had was really just straight on. I mean, and in his, um, I'm, I'm getting confused now. Yeah, in his good eye, I'm sorry, in his good eye, he lost his peripheral. Sorry about that. And that's what caused him not to be able to ever get his license to play contact sports. Um, not even contact sports, even like tennis because of the, the field of vision. Um, so he was limited. Like he could swim, but there were things he could do. He could do track um, as long as those around him were aware and he was very familiar. But all of the sports that he did play, hockey, um, contact sports, he could no longer play. He couldn't ride a bike because it was too dangerous. Um, you know, they we had uh, people test him to see an occupational therapist in a mobility trainer. It would be too dangerous crossing streets with the bike, again, because peripheral. You look one way, and then by the time you turn to the other, you don't have any other field of vision. So he had a lot of disappointments <clears throat> in life uh, because of that. Um, we went probably about two months. He would go every day after school. Um, into Boston, we decided to stay at, uh, we actually went for radiation at Brigham and Women's is where they placed us. And um, he just was a trooper. You know, I took him three days. My husband took him one day and my nephew took him another day. And my dad picked him up every day from high school and brought him to where I taught. And then, so we had a lot of family involved and we hiked into Boston and came back. My husband worked at uh, Hanscom Air Base in Lexington. So he would come home to Middleborough pick him up at the house. My dad would have him here and drive back into Boston. Um, so Eric had a lot of support around him. Um, he's a very strong emotionally. Um, he was very strong emotionally. Uh, he handled it like a trooper, never missed a day of school, uh, you know, would come home, get ill, lost a lot of weight, um, slept a lot, but um, still got up every day and went to school. That's certainly a great credit to him. Now, you mentioned some of the accommodations that he had to make. Uh, he was a freshman in high school at the time, I believe. Uh, so he was at, at some point soon, he was going to be uh, able to drive a car, which he wasn't able to do. He couldn't ride a bike. And of course the, 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 his big sport was hockey. He couldn't play that. Now I'm wondering if he also had problems at all uh, in his social situation, he's in a very, uh, you know, t uh, difficult age um, in his interactions with both his peers and perhaps his teachers and maybe even the administration. Were there, were there any problems there? So really, um, being an educator, when I started seeing um, his neurological testing that they did prior to radiation at Children's, I could see the major drop in the IQ because of the visual field. It was really because of visual. So he, you know, he was break, he couldn't see the, the um, visual part of the test. So I was very concerned when I saw this as an educator, like how could his IQ drop 40 points? And they, you know, they explained to me, that's what made me go back to college to study special education was all of the testing that, that happened to Eric. Um, and they were more concerned with the social aspect. And I was more concerned with the academic aspect. And they were absolutely right. So his closest friends, for the most part, remained his closest friends because they were spoken to by their parents about how to treat Eric and what to do when you're around him. Um, but it was a challenge to a lot of kids because they were fearful. They, they didn't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Or all of a sudden he couldn't ride bikes with them or he couldn't go out with them, um, you know. And, and so 
we had to be very cautious to ensure that we built um, supports in that he could remain friends with just a few close friends. But he ended up uh, he ended up becoming very close to adults. He he related better to adults because of this. So throughout um, his later years in business and in everything else, his relationship with adults was pretty more advanced for a teen or a young 20 than you would expect. And that's because his world became hospitals and traveling back and forth to Boston and being with adults more. And um, he related well to them. So it did have a major impact on his social ability. Um, but he was very good about that too. You know, um, he come out, you know, he always came out to dinner with us. We we out with friends and say, hey Eric, you want to come? And he said, yeah. So he always felt comfortable, even with our friends, he never felt uncomfortable. Um, but um I would say where we live as well, as he got older, um, you know, he had to rely on the T and commuter rails. And so um we always called him Charlie and the MBTA because if you couldn't find Eric, you know he was on some train or some bus somewhere. And um, he had no problem calling, you know, for rides, uh, the, the bus system. He he actually used the, um, they have a bus system around here for seniors. He didn't have any problem using that. You know, he just felt if he needed to do things, he needed to get over this. It wasn't going to take over him. Certainly had the right attitude and to be able to, you know, take these disappointments <laughs> that he obviously had mm-hmm. and uh, turn them around as best he could. Obviously, was a great credit to him. Now, several years later, Eric started to experience leukoplakia, which are essentially lesions in his mouth, which then turned into squamous cell carcinoma. What type of treatment did he have then, and how did that affect his daily life? Mm -hmm. So the leukoplakia, they would go in and do like these little scrapings of these lesions on his tongue, and it was was in. It wasn't even impatient. We'd go for the day, but it was very painful. You know, we'd go in, he'd have it done, we'd come home and you couldn't eat. It was just, it was like taking a whole punch to your tongue, you used to tell me. So we went on for that for a few years. And um, and then he went in to have one taken out surgically and um, the, the doctor, outpatient, and Dr. Norris called me out of the room on the phone the nurse called me and said, um, the doctor wants to talk to you. And um, the doctor said, this is turned into cancer very quickly. And I have to close them up and we have to proceed with a much larger surgery that isn't date. And I need to get other people involved. And I was shocked because it didn't look any different to Eric and I. Uh, he didn't feel any different. And we've been dealing with these for years. And um, so that's that was the begin of head and neck cancer and uh, going to Dana Faber. Prior to the brain tumor, we never went to Dana Faber. We didn't have a reason to go to Dana Faber. Um, but now, all of our services, you know, our appointments for the most part would be at Dana Faber. Um, it was devastating. Um, it was then known as the old man's disease, and Eric was never he never smoked. So how did this happen? Um, after much research and after some discussion with one particular doctor from um, Brigham and Woman who herself experienced the same thing as Eric is she had had brain surgery. She had had radiation to the brain. And uh, several years later, she developed uh, carcinoma and um, squamous cell. And she says it takes just one beam to go the wrong way. You know, when you're going down. And of course, this you know, not to frighten people. This was many years ago when radiation was was different than it is now. 
Um, not to say radiation does horrific damage when you have to head and neck, undoubtedly, even nowadays, but um, that was just a bad beam that hit a wrong place on the tongue. And that was the heat impact that caused the cancer. So that, um, so his first surgery was a, um, a slicing off of part of the tongue because he had it on the tongue. So, um, you know, Dr. Norris did that. And then it was only a few years later because we would go for checkups all the time and, and the tests, bless, bless Eric, you know, this long tube would go up your nose and down your throat, this camera, and I couldn't even watch it be done, you know, and um, they did that every time we went to Dr. Norris and we would probably go, you know, probably every three or four months. And then Eric started having some pain and his uh, dentist said, you need to go to your doctor. And that's when um, in 2005, he had a partial glossectomy where they took out half of his tongue, but left the tips so that he could have good speech. Um, it was it was OK speech. It wasn't perfect speech. And it was, um, you know, it was a 13 hour surgery. Uh, a lot of um, he had a radio flap done, which is they take the uh, veins and arteries from your arm and reconstruct your tongue and rebuild your tongue. And they use um, they call it a flap, a radio flap, and they take skin grafting from your leg to then fix your arm um and then and then he um he was in the hospital 14 weeks with that he was intubated uh he came home with the um you know where we had to suction him I, we had to do about two hours of medical treatment every morning you know he came home where well, you had to pack that radio flap so they teach you in the hospital how to take care of that, how to suction him. He was on a feeding tube. Um, at, at the age of 40, I never thought that I would be doing nursing care like that. And we all had to learn because if I got sick, my husband had to do it. And, and my daughter was a backup. But I think that, you know, the feeding tube wasn't the issue. It was more the suctioning that was very concerning to us. Um, and just his recuperating. Uh from from the surgery um the plus of all of that was back then he didn't need radiation or chemotherapy they got all the margins uh, and down the line that would prove to be even more uh more thankful for so that was his first um large surgery after his brain tumor and probably very devastating to us. You know, they wanted to put him to, you know, can you take care of him? You want to put him in a facility? And I'm like, nope, he's coming home. So um, he was a trooper through that too. You know, he was on a feeding tube about two months. Um, the reconstruction of the tongue is a, is a major project. And so you, you can't talk at first and you, of course you can't eat, but um, everything was resolved and he was as happy as anything. Um, for 13 years, you know. I was just going to bring up that time period because he, uh, for the 13 years, he was doing well. Now, how did, what did he do during those 13 years, whether it's education uh, wise or work wise to keep himself busy uh, mm -hmm. as he was certainly hoping that he was on a track to full health, I would think. Mm -hmm. So after his brain tumor, you know, he went through high school, finished high school, went to undergraduate uh, to be an art major. And then he went to graduate school to major in medical illustration because he was so impacted by his 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 life so far and the team. He wanted to see how could he give back. And he thought through his illustration, if he went into medical illustration. 
So he did that. And again, this is before surgery, just to back up a little bit. But because of the blindness, he couldn't pass some of the courses that were under the microscope. So he changed to do multimedia design. So when he graduated, he was home a couple of years um, and he started a business in web design. Uh, even though his vision was so poor, he had all the devices he needed. Um, then people started making their own web, um, you know, web pages. And he went into um, food service where he would go in and do the multimedia displays for food shows. He worked for this uh, company that was, um, they made machines for pasta and noodles. And he would go travel around the country with the owner and go to the food shows and put up the displays and, and do that sort of work. So he was in the visual media, multimedia aspect of it. And so when he would have these bouts of surgeries, you know, he would take off what he needed for time. He'd work at home sometimes when he could, you know, um, and um, they kept him on and he worked from home and then he'd go back out into the field when he was better. So it went back and forth. Um, for those 13 years, he was he was very happy. He, um, you know, he maintained doing multimedia, web design, a lot of volunteer work for Dana Faber, for St. Jude. And uh, he was very independent. You know, he, he lived here because of transportation. You know, uh, we've set up an apartment for him in our home. So uh, we we're very close. And um, he, he didn't make anything stop him. He was, you know, his speech came back great. In the beginning, he couldn't be understood on the phone. So that was an issue in, in the job world. But um, that worked, that resolved itself. So he was very happy. Yeah. Well, unfortunately... The years 2018 heading into 2019 came, and his squamous cell carcinoma returned in the bone and the gum area of his mouth. First of all, this must have been a, a terrible shock to all of you, especially him, as he had been doing so well for such a long time. And this cancer was not an easy one to diagnose can you talk about that period and how long it actually took Eric to get a proper diagnosis? Mm. That probably that was one of the most frustrating things that we had to deal with. And Eric started having mouth pain, and he has um, a high tolerance of pain. You know, there's some people that have this high tolerance of pain that can be detrimental to a point that you know you let things go. And people, I have a friend who doesn't feel pain, and so you can get into bad situations. Eric knew something was wrong. Uh, oh gosh, at least um, at least um, nine months before he kept going back and forth and to the dentist and then he go to um, his uh, he had a new um, oral sur uh, ENT surgeon at Dana Faba and Dr. Nino said, no, it's a dental issue. And he'd go to the dentist and say, nope, this is not a gum infection. This is not, you need to go back to your um, ENT surgeon. So that went on for months months. And finally, um, Eric started to bleed. And um, Dr. Nino said, well, that doesn't mean it's cancer, Eric. We need to look because his tests were coming back negative, you know, uh, an MRI, uh, whatever test they were doing. And Eric said, I don't care what they're coming back. I'm in pain and there's something wrong. And so finally, they went in and did a biopsy, uh, day surgery, uh, you know, um, I forget the particular test that they did. It was very painful. And it came back that, yes, he had, you know, squamous cell carcinoma. 
And the pathologist said, this can't possibly be related to the one 13 years ago. It doesn't happen. They don't stay put for that long. But everybody at Dana-Farber, you know, on the surgical side said it most definitely is. It's the same cancer we're dealing with. Um, And um, it, it just was getting more and more painful. So not only did it take a long time going back and forth saying what it was, but once we knew, it still took time. To get into the OR is very frustrating. It was very frustrating. So I would say by the time Eric had it operated on, it was a good nine months. And in the meantime, that cancer is growing and growing and um, nothing is being done. Uh, And you know, you're in the best place and it's just the way they do business. So I think it's kind of unfortunate, frankly, that it took nine months, which is an extraordinary amount of time, obviously. But, but I am curious to know, you said that, that he was delayed getting into the OR. I don't understand why he was, that happened. And did you ever get a satisfactory explanation of why it happened? Nope. And and I will just say this, it's not the first, it's not the only time it happened. <laughs> it happened for both surgeries. To me, when you're told, and it also happened when they started immunotherapy, it, it's it's the um, practices and policies in the hospital. I'm not; it's not the doctors. Um, so they would say, I, you know, they have so many days when they can get in. It's quote not considered emergency. Um, yet when his brain tumor was there, that was an emergency. Um, but they couldn't. There was no OR space. No OR space. Uh, they had to get a team together. They had to do further testing. So, you know, they don't, it didn't move quickly. It just, you know, you'd wait two or three weeks to have a test. Then, you know, um, it it just is too long. To me, when you're waiting six and eight weeks to have cancer that is spread, removed, that's unacceptable. And I told them that all the time. And, and they would just say, it's just, you know, we're trying. We're trying to get a space in the OR. This was way, this was before COVID that I heard this. So this, I can't blame COVID for this, but the same thing happened, um, you know, yes, three years later when Eric, um, just skipping to the end, you know, he was told the big August 4th, there was no more they could do for him. They could try immunotherapy, but the immunotherapy never started till October. So what, what is that? And, And how long does it take to set up immunotherapy? We don't need a room for that. So I just found that the, that the red tape, I lived, and I advocate for everyone to do this. I lived in patient relations. I didn't let anything go by. Uh, they knew me down there on a first name basis. Anything you have to advocate. It's a wonderful, you know, Brigham and Women is, a, and I'm talking Brigham and Women now. It's a wonderful hospital, but you must be on top of things. You must advocate for, you know, situations that uh, you feel are not correct. Eric had a roommate that was um, violent. And Eric slept. That's when you could stay in the room with your patient if you wanted to. He slept after having major oral surgery. He slept in a chair in the hallway for safety. And and the nurses on the floors do what they can. But the bottom line is you you have to go to patient relations. You have to look at the board that there's no more rooms anywhere else. And I said, well, where does an emergency patient come in, a car accident patient? Where do they go? So you just have to. You just have to advocate in a very, uh, not a, in, a, in a respectful way. 
but you have to keep your notes and keep everything together. So I asked all the time, what's the delay? Why, why do we have to wait so long for um, treatment or for surgery? And um, it wasn't that way years ago at children's brain surgery and maybe procedures have changed over time, but, um, and it was frustrating for the doctors as well. The whole thing sounds very frustrating, and uh, I, I just can't imagine what you and uh, Eric and your daughter and your husband and everyone else who cared about him uh, had to go through hearing the uh, negativity that was uh, obviously abundant in trying to get this situation straightened away. So we go now to 2020, 2021. Uh, he faced another surgery which did not give a clear path to his cancer. Eric had more radiation and chemotherapy. And then, as you started to mention before, we, we go to August of last year as his cancer, Eric's cancer was moving at a very rapid pace. And he was told that, as you said, his only option was for immunotherapy, but he only went through two of them. And in, I guess in October, and they told him uh, that this was not going to work. Mm -hmm. So what was the next uh, step after that? Yeah. So um, after that second major surgery uh, in 2020, you know, it went up to the mastoid bone. It was starting to follow the nerves. He was in immense pain. You know, he continued. He tried to work. He started a business of um, his own um a cottage kitchen making jams and jellies and mustards and stuff. And he was very happy. And that's what kept him busy. And um, he said to me, I just want to have a normal summer. You know, uh, that was the summer of, of 2020. And um, that's when he started having, it didn't, it wasn't a normal summer, you know, it just started all over again. And um, they seemed to move a little quicker and getting this surgery set up. But in the meantime, he was just under a tremendous amount of pain. Um, when they said that they had to do radiation therapy um, and chemo again, they were very, very hesitant on doing the radiation because the fields were so close. And they, we already saw damage from the first radiation. You know, Eric never had damage other than get, getting cancer 13 years later from brain surgery. He had tremendous damage from radiation to the oral cavity, uh, you know, the inability to swallow correctly, sinus issues, uh, drooling, dry mouth, it went back and forth. So I just want to be clear that the as soon as we had those surgery in 2018 and then again a year later, that is the worst surgery and the worst treatment I've ever seen a patient go through. Um, it's just totally debilitating. So on top of someone who is legally blind, we now have someone who can't talk. So when Eric would go into the hospital, um, it, at the end, like when you said what happened in August 2021, um, by that late fall, he was using a whiteboard because he couldn't talk, not because of his tongue. This was the radiation damage and the cancer closing in on the throat. Um, so it was very rapid. So when they told him in August that there was nothing they could do about the immunotherapy, he said, fine. At this point, he really felt that 
well, okay, I've made it through surgeries and radiation and cancer doesn't work. This is going to work. He never once doubted. He didn't ever think he was going to die. He he just felt that Dana Faber, Brigham and Women, and now we had been involved with Mass General for a bit, they would fix him. They always fixed him. They've been fixing him since he's 15. He's he's 44. Why would they not be able to do it? Uh, and he was a fighter. And he felt he he called it the A-team. He felt his doctors were always the best. If he didn't like a doctor, he got rid of that doctor. But he he just always felt they could do it. So with immunotherapy, it was like, okay, let's get started. Let's get started. As this was happening, he was, you could see he was, he was ill. He was very ill. And uh, we put a feeding tube in because he could no longer eat. He fought it. He didn't want it. This was his fourth time for feeding tube. But with the aspiration of trying to eat, you know, um, he would try to eat speech and language, say, oh, Eric, you can't eat. And he said, yes, I can. I can even choose steak. And, you know, he'd be going, <clears throat> and I'm saying, Eric, you're aspirating. No, I'm not. I'm fine. But those months of him proving that he could eat caused him to have pneumonias building in his lungs. And so we had several trips from August until he died in December of, of being hospitalized because of aspiration. Uh, which when you have head and neck cancer, they don't, you don't want to aspirate. He had had a MRI in June that determined this at Brigham and Women, and he aspirated in the MRI machine. And that was the cause and start. Um, he was never the same from the day that he got ill in the MRI machine and aspirated, even though they sent him down an x-ray right away and said he didn't. Um, we don't believe him. That was the start of it. Uh, the doctors felt that he did. And um, that's when he just started going downhill, you know, and I brought in a respiratory therapist at home to help him in the fall. You know, we just got our own. And um, hospital stays, it got worse. And even when he could no longer talk and required a whiteboard, he'd still, he still thought he was going to be better, that the immunotherapy was going to do it. He had two rounds, he needed one more round, and then he'd probably have more. He was waiting for January when we would have another test to see how it was working. Um, Dr. Siegel, his uh, oncologist, was just amazing, an amazing man. He was new to Dana-Farber. He came in July, and our doctor had left to go to the Midwest. And it was just, um, it was an amazing um, way that the hospital rallied around Eric, Dana-Farber, rather, how they rallied around Eric and whatever he needed. I'd call up and say, he's really not doing well. Can we come in, please? And come right on in. So we were probably taking these emergency trips to Dana-Farber um, once, twice a week for months because I can't breathe, he would say, or they got to make this better, or he didn't, he really felt ill. Um, so we were there all the time. And you know, I just remember, like, I'd bring his suction machine. I would bring his, I, I had all this machinery with me. I had a little cot. I would take it all in. And I'd sit in that room with Dana Fiber on the 11th floor. And you knew he was the sickest in that room, but he didn't see that. Um, I also felt his world became smaller. Um, uh, so with an Alzheimer's patient, you know how their world becomes smaller. They no longer see the full room they see. And I felt with Eric, I could see him. Like he wasn't out there anymore. He was pulling in. And after he died, um, it, I read that it really is the body preparing 
to end and to die. And, um, but we didn't see that. Even the doctors didn't see that, you know, I, I'd go in and they were surprised too, how fast it happened. Um, so in December, um, the doctors told us that they would have to stop the immunotherapy. It wasn't working. Um, he developed a blood clot in the back of his head and, um, he wouldn't have long to live. And that was, um, the week before Christmas. <clears throat> so we were taking him home and, uh, my husband asked if we could wait till after Christmas to tell him it was just like, was Mr. Christmas. <clears throat> and, um, I was a little hesitant because people have the right to know that they're dying. And I told my husband that I said, he needs to know he's dying. And, and so the doctor agreed that we could wait till after Christmas. And we also, and the doctor said, let's make appointments for him. So he thinks everything is going to be, if that's what you want, we'll change and tell him he's coming in for chemotherapy, you know, on a certain date. So, um, I called them. He wasn't doing well. It was after Christmas. I said, it was Monday. And I said, we need to come in. He needs to be seen. And, and you need to tell him this is, I said, we can't go on like this anymore. And, uh, so it was very hard us knowing and him not knowing. And also he was getting very ill. So we went in and Eric had his whiteboard and um, he said, and doctor, the doctor told him and he wrote to, on the whiteboard and he said, um, take me to Mass General, mom, they can fix it. And that's when, you know, I sort of took over um, and told him what was going on. And he was silent all the way home. You know, I mean, he didn't use his whiteboard. He was uncomfortable. He got home and that night he wrote on his whiteboard um, to his, my daughter and his nephew, um, whatever is in my business, I'm leaving. I want Ethan, that's my my grandson, to have it for college. So that was his, his one and only preparation that he wanted to talk about. The rest was continue because I'm going to beat this still. We got on the floor that night and my daughter did yoga with him to sort of get him relaxed. and. Um, he woke up the next morning, he was smiling and, um, you know, we went through our medical routine and washing him and dressing him and he wanted to go back to bed. And then he, <clears throat> he slipped into a semi-coma and uh, he died the next day. So he found out on a Monday and he died Wednesday at noontime. And I think that was his, his choice, but I, I, I think that we stopped the, um, the shots for the, for the, um, the blood clot. And I do believe, you know, that, that it was the blood clot. We had to call ENTs to come on site, but they just came on site. We let them go. Um, and he stayed home to die, but, um, it was very peaceful. It was the way Eric would want it. We were all around watching the Muppets. That was his favorite show. And, um, we had it on the, on for him and, um, and hospice ended up coming in like the last uh, 24 hours. But, um, you know, he was a trooper. He still didn't believe he was dying. He felt that he could be fixed. And he said, I have the best team. And he'd write me, I have the A team and we'll get this resolved. We'll get this fixed. And I think that that's how he made it through life, believing. Well, he was ever the optimist. There's no question. Uh, his passing was on the 29th of December, just a little over eight months ago. Um, a very short amount of time. I would like to ask you a little bit about your daughter and his oldest sister. 
she wasn't around all the time that he was sick. How did uh, his, you know, certainly the last few years anyway, and 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 uh, and maybe before that, affect her uh, and uh, her uh, her son? Sure. Well, you know, when Eric became so ill at the end, she said when he died, she said to me. I've been waiting for this day. I've been, I, how did she say? She said, I knew this day would come. I feared this day since he was identified at 15 with a brain tumor. She was a senior in high school. And she's, she just said to me, I, I, I never wanted to face this day. Um, I, being away in COVID, I haven't even talked about COVID. COVID had a major impact on Eric's last two years of his life because it was just he and I, my husband was, you know, he could drive us to the hospital, but he couldn't go in. He was no part of it. So usually I had asked him to stay home because if he shouldn't sit in a car, he's a diabetic. He'd be in the car all day long. Um, so it affected her because she lived in New York. And on top of it, we had COVID and she's a school teacher. And my grandson was in middle school. So the going back and forth from New York, it was too dangerous for them. Even though we were vaccinated, you know, we, we were in our bubble. Yeah. And so it had an impact. We would do Zoom meetings once a week or twice a week, but Eric's vision, Zoom meetings weren't good for him. He would just get up and walk away because he couldn't see the screen. You know, it wasn't. Um, he'd rather talk on the phone when he could talk. So it had a major impact on us. She actually had to take a leave from her teaching when she went back. You know, they stayed. Um, she took a leave before and stayed with us the last two weeks of his life. They were here. Um and so she was able to see him be at peace, but at the same time, she felt um, very alone and guilty that she couldn't be here more. And, and a lot of that was COVID, you know. Um, and it, it till this day has had a major impact on her. You know, she, at the end of every fundraiser in our backyard, the some of the pizza fundraisers, you know, she broke down. She had a hard time of it. It was just the two of them. They were very close. You know, he would go off to New York, take the bus to New York, go visit. You know, he loved to do home projects. He'd help her husband, you know, put down a wooden floor, a tile, a bathroom. So they were very close. And um, this um, COVID just put a, a real block between seeing them. And my grandson was the love of Eric's life. And um, and I'm, I don't really feel, you know, everybody deals with grief differently, but... Um, I don't think my grandson's ready to deal with the passing of his uncle. Um, when they come here, things are better for my husband and I, but hard for them. Uh, they put on a good show, but it's hard for them to be here. When you're around someone's space all the time, it's easier than when you come once in a while. And it, so I, it has been very difficult for her, and they were very close. Well, certainly... Uh... <laughs> A tough situation all around. I was just thinking about your your grandson, and of course, uh, he's going to have tremendous memories of Eric because uh, a their relationship uh, uh, certainly now in, in your grandson's mind. Plus the fact that when he does go to college, he's going to know that his uncle contributed uh, quite substantially. I would guess uh, with his future. Now you've decided. To honor Eric and his life, uh, and his life, of course, and the way you're doing it is to participate in the upcoming Boston Marathon Jimmy Fun Walk, which, as we record this podcast, will be taking place one month from today on Sunday, October second. 
just a few days after this uh, podcast will be published. Can you talk about what you know about this event or what you knew about this event before you signed up for it and why you decided to honor Eric in this way? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. So Eric started to do the marathon a couple of years ago, um, once before he had that major surgery, uh, ENT surgery. And then when he healed from that, he did it again. And um, he said to me, Mom, I want you to do it with me. And I was a school administrator and I felt like I couldn't get the time into practice. So after his last time he did it, um, I, in fact, did you say it was 2020 when it was really hot? Oh, no. He did it. No, it was, it was 20. It was either 2017 or 2018. Oh, okay. 2020 and 21 uh, were virtual events pretty much. Yeah, I, I think it might have been. Too, he might have done the 2018 when it was his last one. And um, he said to me, you know what? I'm not going to ask you anymore. I'm going to tell you, you're going to do it with me, you know. So and my daughter said, we'll come from New York. We'll do it, too. And um so we had promised him we would do it. And so, of course, how could we not do it now? Um, so, uh, you know, I was used to fundraising from being a principal in a school. And um, so it it pulled together pretty quickly. Eric had built us an outdoor kitchen and he loved making. Um, he had a pizza oven out there. Uh, he made himself out of stone and then bought the in- internal parts. And he has, uh, you know, a smoker out there and a poncha grill and a regular grill and a sink. He's got it all it, cabinets. It's just beautiful. He's done so many, much hardscape in my yard. It's amazing. We could never move. And um, so I said, what better way to honor him than to have a pizza party? Because he loved having, he loved to entertain. So we decided well, we couldn't cook for everybody at once. So we had my husband's family and my family and then friends, a group of about 30 plus people each time we did it this summer. And of course, I'm from the restaurant business, my family. So it's just not pizza. You know, you have to have pasta and all that sort of things. And we did this all for Eric. Um, and we raised thousands of dollars. I said anyone who gave 400 or more would be considered a sponsor of our team. And I put their name on their shirt. So we have six sponsors and, um, and it's been a lot of fun. We've raised, I I think for our team, I know we've surpassed our goal. I can't even recall, honestly, I should 15,000 maybe. Um, but beyond that, when Eric would go to radiation or for any treatments and we'd walk down that hallway connecting the buildings at Dana-Farber, that gene, wall display he used to say to me as soon as i make enough that i can put it aside i'm going to buy one of these jeans and i want my name on one of these and so um eric had a life insurance policy and the very first thing i did was to buy a jean because that's what he wanted and we're going to be seeing that um the the, the group of people that work at dana faba for the jimmy fund are just amazing but we're going to go down october 1st that saturday night as a family and see his jean they sent me a picture of it and then he was is younger involved in the Jimmy Fund Clinic when he had his brain tumor and they have that uh, Imagine display. So we picked style 100 because he always gave 100 and more percent and had his name put on that star. So we're trying to do, and we've donated a good amount of money um, in memory of Eric because that's what he would do. And um, he always, he was on the PFAC at Dana-Farber and um, he always gave to them so what little he could so we felt that's in memory of him that's the least we could do 
So, and we have a memory garden in our backyard because the company that he bought all his bricks and stone from when he did the yard work, um, they donated a beautiful granite bench and had it engraved in our yard. So he he made friends along the way because he did so much for others. So our work for Dana-Farber just came natural that this is what we have to do. And uh, so we're already thinking about next year, how will we do it differently? Well, the first year is always uh, you, you, you try things and uh, the next year, um, I'm sure, and you're doing great so far, obviously this year, but uh, as you get into it and as you do it each year, it'll be uh, a different uh, experience and probably somewhat easier to uh, organize it and, and do the things that you want to do. Now that your team name is Beyond Cancer. Yes. Why you name? Why did you name your team uh, that? And what significance does it have to you? And would it have to uh, Eric? So, um, the first couple of months after Eric died, I kept getting these nudges. I thought that's what I call them as nudges, and I keep saying, "Eric, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do now?" And um, one of the nudges, uh, there were so many. One of the nudges was um, read my memoirs. So he would write in. When he come home from Dana Faba, or after he had a, especially during um, COVID, when he would have his uh, meetings virtual, um, he would write, and he he sometimes would read them to me. They they weren't like it wasn't a personal journal that he didn't want people to read. So um, he never told me what he named this. And when I got that nudge to go to the computer, I'm like, where am I going to find it? You know, he has so many files, and there was this file called Beyond Cancer. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what that is. So I opened up that file, and those were his memoirs he had been writing. Um, and he probably wrote every other week. So I kept thinking when we had the team, what are we going to name it? What are we going to name it? And I used part of his memoirs and his um, in his interment at the cemetery, and I used it in a thank you note. I used some of his wording. And my daughter said, well, you know, we came up with some names and finally I said to her, beyond cancer, that's what he wrote about all the time. He believed that he would be, he would surely live beyond the cancer years. So that's what the team has to be. So we can give power and strength to others to know that there's beyond cancer for them. Now, in case you've not looked lately, um, you were asking about how you were doing financially as far as fundraising. Now, your goal was $10,000. Yes. And the last I looked uh, was, which was uh, about a week ago, you had raised over $12,200 to this point. How many team members do you have? And can people still get on your team uh, if they would like to? Absolutely. So, yes, we're always taking people on our team. Um, and we usually put up a monthly uh, notice on our Facebook page. So we currently have about 21 people on our team. Um, and we have people who aren't walking, who have been helping me do other things. Uh, we have family members, Eric's cousins. He has a lot of cousins. I have a lot of, um, friends of mine from school, um, both administrators as well as, um, parents that were parents in my school. Uh, we have, like I say, a lot of relatives and some dear friends. And, um, so, my husband can't walk because of his disability, but my son-in-law and my daughter and my nephew will be walking and he's bringing two friends along as well. So we have a great team. Um, part of the fundraising we hear is everybody got a little gift bag thanking them. And 
Eric, another one of my nudges was to this uh, little stone that it said, believe you can. I found it in his coin job one day, my nudge to the coin job. So I painted boards for everybody that said, believe you can, you know, uh, wooden boards with a ribbon they could hang up in their house to remember Eric. Um, so we're trying to get as many people as we can on the team. Um, and if they can't and they want to donate, that's that's fine too. We had a couple of um, pizza baskets to to give away as door prizes, but Eric's jams and jellies we did a um, a silent auction for while we had the fundraisers going on. Um, so we try to entice people as many ways as possible uh, to join our team or to help our cause. And our cause is uh, our fundraising for the Jimmy Fund um, is going specifically to head and neck cancer. But our other donations have been to just Dana Faba in general. And where could people um, find you? Where can they find Beyond Cancer if they want to donate or hopefully join the team? Yeah, just go. Yeah, go to the Jimmy Fund. Yeah, sure, both. We'd love to have you. Um, go to the Jimmy Fund Walk page and look for Beyond Cancer team and hit our button and join. Um, we're doing great. Uh, people are doing great. I do believe I'm up to 15,000. I, I can't recall. Uh, you know, I try to keep on touch. It, somebody's donating every day. It's just amazing. Um, it's just amazing. And my neighbor yesterday said, oh, I haven't done it yet. I'll be over. So um, it's just I keep a sign on my lawn. I've had a sign on my lawn since the signs came out this year and put balloons on it. I put out books for sale out there, a dollar, a, bu- a buck a book for Dana Faber. But um so, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, Eric gave so much to so many people um, of all ages. Um, it's just important that we, we carry on his legacy. Trust me when I tell you that I've had the pleasure and the fortune of walking in this event for a number of years. And it is truly a great day. Um Obviously, uh, people are there uh, to walk in honor and in memory of, of their loved ones. And when you get to the end of the walk in Copley Square, they have a wonderful celebration for you, for, for, for all the walkers. And, it, and you leave uh, being more determined than ever for the next year to do even more, which is uh, I'm imagining you're going to do. As a final question, are you and I, I'm, I know the answer is yes. And uh, but I'll ask the question anyway. Are you planning on spending much of uh, of your time in the future um, dedicating what you're doing to Eric and advocating uh, for the cause of uh, head and neck cancer? Absolutely. I actually emailed his doctor, his oncologist that left to go out to uh, Chicago. I said, I'd love to know the percentage of money nationally that's put aside for head and neck cancer. He goes, what a great question. So I'm always seeking information. I I signed up to be on the PFAC at Dana-Farber. I, you know, I know that's hard to get on. I've offered my services. Um, I, I tell the, 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 the team at the Jimmy Fund, if anybody needs to talk to anybody or a family member is having a hard time, um, I'm always here. Um, I'll donate whatever time I can. Um, I will certainly um, promote research and funding for head and neck cancer. If there's ever, uh, you know, Eric had went on um, many just talks on on brain cancer. You know, he was um, he was sent with um, Neil Armstrong to go down to Dallas to talk uh, about 
uh, brain cancer, brain tumors, and his treatment um, patients when he had his initial head and neck surgery. Um, Dr. Norris would call him to go in and talk to a patient. Um, and so I learned from Eric that the most, the best you can do for someone is like, just listen to them and be there for them. And um, so I told Dana Faba, whatever I could do at any point in time, um, you know, I have a specific set of skills from being a school administrator. Um, I dealt when kids came back from Children's Hospital with cancer. I brought the team in from Children's to, to welcome him back and to work with the teachers in the class. So I've been very involved, you know, I, I 40, 40, 50 years with doing this work. And um, whatever I can do to help any patient out there, anybody, you know, I would I give out my number freely and I'm willing to talk or meet with anyone. And if there's the hospital, I can be of help. I wish I could do something. I mean, I know that there's I just feel like this again, like I don't want I don't want to go in and just straighten up magazines and <laughs> and show people where the chapel is. But I really want to do some real positive work with people and helping them through the situation. <clears throat> One thing I didn't mention before was talking about the chapel one. Eric would be operated on. Um, I'd always go to the chapel of Brigham, and one one time I opened my eyes after prayer, and in the center of the board was a heart, and Eric was spelled the same way as my Eric. And I thought, well, that's really powerful. So I must be meant to be here. Um, so I see those signs all the time, and I'm just like nothing ha makes me more happy than to be able to help someone in need. So, well, it's a, a great way to. Uh, come to the end of this podcast. Um, first of all, of course, my condolences on the loss of Eric. It hasn't been that long, and uh, no matter how long it's been, it it uh, it's always uh, there for anyone um, uh, losing a, a child. Of course, I want to wish you the best of luck in the upcoming walk. I know oh, you're going to do you. great, and uh, thank you for taking the time to come on to talk about Eric, to talk about uh, the Jimmy Fun Walk. <laughs> And uh, I hope you have a great day. And, and thank you very much for coming on to my show. Wow. Thank you for having me. A special for us. Thank you. And you have a great day. You too. Although Eric was unable to live the long life that he deserved, I am sure that you can tell what great human qualities he brought to the table every day. Eric's legacy will go on and grow for many years especially as Anita will be devoting a great deal of her time to helping others because of what Eric went through. And Sunday's Jimmy Fun Walk is just the beginning of what is to come from Anita. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Monday when I will speak with Dina Cavan, who will talk about her son Everett, who passed away from a rhabdoid tumor in his liver on February 22nd of 2015, just five days before he was to turn 10 months old. Dina will also talk about her Rhett's Roost nonprofit, which she and her husband Jim started after Rhett's passing. This nonprofit holds both survivor retreats and retreats for bereaved families as their way of giving back to others. <laughs>